Actually, I should have had you just stay standing. Why don't we stand for the reading of God's word? Okay, sorry about that. Psalm 145. Psalm 145. This will be the last Sunday that we spend in this, just this tremendous psalm. The whole title of our messages uh, these last three Sundays has been declaring the greatness of God. Psalm 145. A psalm of praise of David. I will extol you, my God, O King, and I will bless your name forever and ever. Every day I will bless you and I will praise your name forever and ever. Great is the Lord and highly to be praised and his greatness is unsearchable. One generation shall praise your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts On the glorious splendor of your majesty and on your wonderful works, I will meditate. Men shall speak of the power of your awesome acts, and I will tell of your greatness. They shall eagerly utter the memory of your abundant goodness and will shout joyfully of your righteousness. The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and great in loving kindness. The Lord is good to all. And his mercies are over all his works. All your works shall give thanks to you, O Lord, and your godly ones shall bless you. They shall speak of the glory of your kingdom and talk of your power to make known to the sons of men your mighty acts and the glory of the majesty of your kingdom. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and your dominion endures throughout all generations. The Lord sustains all who fall. And raises up all who are bowed down. The eyes of all look to you and you give them their food in due time. You open your hand and satisfy the desire of every living thing. The Lord is righteous in all his ways and kind in all his deeds. The Lord is near to all who call upon him. To all who call upon him in truth. And he will fulfill the desire of those who fear him. He will also hear their cry and will save them. The Lord keeps all who love him, but all the wicked he will destroy. My mouth will speak the praise of the Lord, and all flesh will bless his holy name forever and ever. Father God, we thank you for these tremendous words from the psalmist about your greatness. Lord, we can't dwell enough on Your greatness, who you are, your attributes, your characteristics. Lord, I pray, I pray that that in in these last couple of weeks and, and through today, Lord, that you will use what is in this psalm to help draw us ever closer to you and your son, that in knowing who you are and 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 just to a greater degree, that Father, that will just Bowl us over with who you are. And Lord, what our response to knowing you might be. And that yes, Lord, our relationship with you would grow deeper. And Lord, that we would offer you higher praise, exaltation, the glory you deserve because of your greatness. Oh Lord, give us Eyes to see, ears to hear, hearts to understand, Father, 
your word, and again, who you are. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. This is the word of God, friends. A young boy once asked his father, Dad, how big is God? And the father looked up at the sky and he saw a a, a little airplane way off in the far distance. and And he asked his son, well, what size is that plane up there in the sky? And the boy replied, well, it's 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 really small, right? It's. It's, it's almost kind of tiny. I can hardly see it. And the father said, son, we need to go on a little trip because I want to show you something. So they jumped into the dad's truck and off they went to the airport. Once there, they got out and surveyed the planes landing and the planes taking off and refueling and loading up passengers And there happened to be a a 747 jumbo jet that was especially impressive to the boy. And so the father asked his son, Now son, how big is that plane? And the boy looked at the airplane. He said, wow, dad, that plane is huge. It's giant. It's a lot bigger than that plane in the sky, isn't it? And then the father put his arm around his son And he said, son, God's size is like this plane. It is the same one that you saw up in the sky from a distance. And yes, it looks so small. You see, God's size depends on how close or how far you are to him. And the closer you are, the bigger God looks. (coughs) Friends, I believe the same is true where God's greatness is concerned. Relationally speaking, the farther away you are from God, He's only a little great. He's only this much great. But the closer you are to Him, His greatness is just all the more magnified. And that's really been the point of studying Psalm 145 and the attributes and character of God because I certainly believe that the the better that you and I know God, then the closer to Him we will be and of course the greater He will be to us. And like with King David, <coughs> excuse me, that greatness, it will elicit a response. It has to, it must Well, so far in our study, we have looked at these characteristics of God, these attributes of God in the form of declarations, that that David is making these declarations. He has declared God's name. He has declared God's kingship. He has declared his greatness. He's declared God's works and his acts. He has declared God's abundant goodness. He has declared God's glorious splendor and majesty. And along the way, all of the responses that we see from the psalmist that we realize should be our responses to this great and awesome God. So we pick up this week with our seventh declaration, 
declaring God's righteousness. Declaring His righteousness. We see this in verse 7 and 17. We're going to start with verse 17, which says, The Lord is righteous in all His ways and kind in all His deeds. The Lord is righteous in all His ways. Now, the original meaning of the Hebrew word tzedek is to literally be straight. It is to be straight. In the sense of an ethical and moral standard. And here's the ethical and moral standard. And that is, it is the nature and will of God. That is the standard. In the New Testament, we, we see this word dikaios, which is, it means right. It means conformable to right, pertaining to right, and also that which is just. As the complete Word Study Dictionary of the New Testament, one of my favorite sources to go to, says it refers to the one who acts conformably to justice and right without any deficiency or failure. Thus it is applied to God and His Son. I like what <coughs> excuse me, Paul Washer writes in his Knowing the Living God uh, study. He says this, quote, God is an absolutely righteous being and always acts in a way that is perfectly consistent with who he is there is nothing wrong or incorrect about god's nature or his works he would never be or do anything that would justify any accusation of wrongdoing his works decrees and judgments are absolutely perfect on the day when god judges all men according to their works even the condemned will bow their heads and declare that God is right. End quote. I think to myself, if I could have one of God's attributes, those attributes that he doesn't give to us as human beings, I think I would want this one. Because as my family could probably attest, I already think I'm right, right? So I think, well, you know, I think that, what would it be like to actually be right, huh? Wouldn't that be something? Friends, it's important to understand that righteousness is not something that God decides to do. Rather, it is an intrinsic, inherent part of who He is. It is inside of Him. It is a part of Him. If God were not altogether righteous, He would not be God. And of course, the Lord Jesus Christ, being God, is also then understood as fully righteous. In several places in the New Testament, he's actually referred to as the righteous one. John refers to him as Jesus Christ, the righteous, in 1 John chapter 2. And Peter calls him the just, in 1 Peter chapter 3. Now, we see God's righteousness in the scriptures go hand in hand with his kingship. For instance, in Psalm 97 and verse 2, it says, Righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. Or Psalm 45, verses 6 to 7, it says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness. And hated wickedness. And God's righteousness also means that his word is right and altogether true. 
In Psalm 119 and verse 142 has the psalmist declaring, Your righteousness is an everlasting righteousness and your law is truth. It's tied in with his law. And then if we were to look at uh, verses 144 and 116, 172 of Psalm 119, we would read that God's testimonies, his ordinances, his commandments, just different ways of describing his word are righteous forever, which also means that God's righteousness is unchangeable. There will never be a time when God or his word are not righteous. They will always be righteous. His righteousness is also closely tied to his justice. As we read in Deuteronomy 32, 4, which says, The rock, his work is perfect, for all his ways are just, a God of faithfulness and without injustice. Righteous and upright is he. (coughs) Excuse me this morning. Psalm 9 and verse 8 tells us that he will judge the world in righteousness. He will execute judgment for the peoples with equity. And in 2 Chronicles 19.7, it tells us that the fear of the Lord should be upon us because God being righteous can have no part of unrighteousness. And furthermore, God will judge and condemn the unrighteous while those who believe on Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior will receive His righteousness. Isn't that an awesome thing? As Psalm 11 and verse 7 says, For the Lord is righteous. He loves righteousness. The upright will behold His face. God, of course, can have no part of unrighteousness. Now, returning back to Psalm 145, what is David's response then to God's righteousness? For this, we look to verse 7. Verse 7, he says, they, and the they refers to men back in verse 6, they shall eagerly utter the memory of your abundant goodness and will shout joyfully of your righteousness. Now, whether privately or publicly, We too are to loudly and joyfully make God's righteousness known. And based on the few texts that that we've just recently surveyed here, I think there's two primary reasons for doing that. (coughs) Number one, God's righteousness leads to our righteousness. Because, friends, He has set forth a, a straight and perfect standard of righteousness calling His creation to that same straight standard. And unfortunately, though, we all fall short of that standard, don't we? We have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. How many righteous is there? None. There's none righteous, not even one. But thankfully, God has a plan for this. A plan to bring things back into line. Back into that, that straight and perfect standard. And it's called the gospel The good news of God sending His righteous Son to live the righteous life that we never could, to die in our place, the righteous for the unrighteous. The righteous being Christ, the unrighteous being us. 
And then, of course, he goes into the ground for those three days before gloriously resurrecting to new life. And for those who believe in what Christ has accomplished on the cross, on on their behalf, then Jesus' very own righteousness is transferred to them. Thus, allowing us to be right with God with all, all rights and privileges therewith, including the Holy Spirit, even taking up residence in us. And now, friends, we are, start, we are able to start living righteously ourselves. And we are able to do so in a way that pleases Him, in a way that brings Him glory, because our righteous living now comes from a thankful, loving heart towards God and His Son. Psalm 51 and verse 14, the psalmist says, Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, the God of my salvation. Then my tongue will sing joyfully of your righteousness. And secondly, God's righteousness means that sin will be punished and justice will be satisfied. Now, all human beings have a sense of justice. And guess where that comes from? It comes from God creating human beings in His image. There's a, there's a scene in the book of Revelation, in chapter 6, verses 9 and 10, which tells of the, quote, souls of those who had been slain because of the Word of God and because of the testimony which they had maintained. These are, these are martyrs, friends, people who died For the faith. Verse 10. And they cried out with a loud voice saying. How long O Lord. Holy and true will you refrain from judging and avenging our blood. On those who dwell on the earth. We see that they have this sense. Of righteousness. We all have that innate sense. Of justice. And while we might not see justice in some of the circumstances and situations that we experience in this life, there will come a day when Jesus will judge all sin and wickedness, when He will sit on His throne with the living and the dead standing before Him, and books will be opened, including the book of life, and they will be judged by their sinful deeds that have been written in the books. And if their name is not found written in the book of life, they will be thrown into the lake of fire. Brothers and sisters, let us shout joyfully. Let us shout joyful praises and thanksgivings to God for His righteousness. And at the same time, let these joyful shouts also serve as a warning to an unbelieving world. Well, the second declaration that we'll focus on this morning, number eight in our ongoing list, is declaring God's grace, mercy, patience, and kindness. David declares God's grace, mercy, patience, and kindness. You say, well, ah, that's, a, that's a bunch. We're going to lump all these four together and in kind of one point, yes, um, some of these attributes that we we're looking at, we've, we've actually talked a lot about in recent weeks and months. And so we've spent more time on some and maybe not as much time on others. But in this case, too, you'll see that these four all work 
together. Look at verse 8 back in our text. Verse 8. The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, which demonstrates patience, right? We just interject that there. Slow to anger and great in loving kindness. The Lord is good to all and his mercies are over all his works. Down in verse 17, we also see that it says that he is kind in all his deeds. And and again, just some quick definitions. A Hebrew word for gracious there is hanan. It means to show favor, to pity, to have mercy towards... So gracious and merciful are very similar. Merciful means to have compassion for or to love deeply, to have a tender affection towards. Slow to anger, as I just said, is patience and kindness or loving kindness. It's, it's just that. It's kindness. It's loving kindness. I'm sure David had Exodus 34 verses 5 to 6 in mind when he wrote verse 8. Exodus 34, 5 and 6 harkens back to when God has uh, replaced the two stone tablets that that Moses broke, had the Ten Commandments on them. And it says, the Lord descended in the cloud and stood there with him, meaning Moses, as he, Moses, called upon the name of the Lord. And then the Lord passed by in front of him and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth. And in the case of Psalm 145 and these three verses, David is clear that he is referring to all people everywhere. He says the Lord is good to all And God's mercy is being over all his works, not just works that favor those who know and love him. In fact, God is gracious and merciful in in the, the basic sense of his provision for all mankind. And as we mentioned last week, this this has a, a, a name. It's called common grace. In other words, it rains on the just and the unjust. The sun rises and sets on the the, the righteous and the unrighteous. And we're going to talk more about that in just a, a couple of minutes. But here he's also patient in that he is slow to anger. Slow to anger. So that, that we have to ask the question, what would anger God? And it's interesting because the first time that God's anger is actually mentioned in the Bible, it doesn't mean that he hadn't been angry prior to this, But when it's actually first mentioned is when it burned against Moses for Moses complaining about having to be God's mouthpiece to Pharaoh back in Exodus 4.14. So the simple answer is, is that God's anger burns against sin. It burns against sin. People disobeying him, rebelling against him, committing iniquity. These kinds of things kindle his anger. And in applying these attributes to the gospel and salvation, God is gracious and merciful and patient and He demonstrates loving kindness to His creation by the simple fact that He just doesn't send us immediately to hell the first time we sin. Or even when we're born, just take us out and send us to the fiery pit for the sin that's inside of us. Or the second time that he would, we would sin against him. 
Or the third time that we would sin against him. Or the, yeah, you get the idea. And the fact that God's mercies, his his compassion, his love and affection are over all his works. And he is kind in all his deeds demonstrates again the fact that God's wonderful works, his mighty acts are always for the benefit of his creation. It's always for our good. For our benefit. And this is understood in the, that sense again of common grace. That which benefits all people everywhere. Believer and unbeliever alike. As well as his special grace. Given to those that he saves. Now in this realm of common grace. Remember that God gives unbelievers life and breath and food and water and all that they need to survive, right? But he has also created all people, unbelievers as well as believers in his own image. In other words, all people have souls and spirits and intellects and minds and hearts. All can think and feel and laugh and cry. And even unbelievers know the truth of God. Because he made it evident within them, so says Romans 1. They know right from wrong because they too have the work of the law written in their hearts, Romans 2.15. And they have consciences as well that, that bear witness in their thoughts, alternately accusing or else defending them, again Romans 2. And in this, he extends great patience to them. Desiring that all men would be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. 1 Timothy 2, 4. Or as we see in 2 Peter 3 and verse 9. The Lord is not slow about his promise. As some count slowness, but is patient toward you. Not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. Or Ezekiel 18 and verse 32. When, when the Lord says, for I have no pleasure in the death of anyone who dies, declares the Lord. Therefore, repent and live. And for those who may be remembering our sovereignty of God study and how God elects and predestines those he will save before the foundation of the world, you might be thinking, well, I mean, does God really demonstrate patience if he already knows who he's going to save and he knows precisely when he's going to save them. And, and if they aren't the elect, well, there would really be no need then for his patience. Would there? In other words, it only seems like God would demonstrate patience if salvation was solely left up to the will of the person, right? That God's just kind of patiently waiting to see if they're going to Repent and believe. No, no, it's not, not exactly that. Take somebody like the Apostle Paul, for instance. The man is self-described as a blasphemer, persecutor, and violent aggressor in 1 Timothy 1.13. And yes, Paul's salvation was secured before the foundation of the world, and God knew exactly when he was going to save Paul, but he was patient with him until then even though paul was rebelling against god and committing 
heinous acts. He was patient to let Paul get to the place God needed him to be when he saved him. So that then Paul could go on and do the gospel ministry that God had ordained for him, all to fulfill God's perfect and good plan, one that would ultimately bring God the most glory. And you might be thinking, but that doesn't sound right. It, it just it doesn't fit with, with my, my, my mindset and sensibilities that, that God allowed Paul to do all kinds of horrible things to other people until then? I mean, how could he patiently sit by and just let that happen? And this is where we start... We have to be careful, friends, because we have to remember that sin in the world is not God's fault. Sin in the world is our fault. It is mankind's fault. We are responsible for sin, not God. And furthermore, in God's sovereignty, he sees that bigger picture, right? He sees that bigger picture that we frankly just usually don't see. And these also may be some of those, those secret things of God that we're not even able to understand why he does what he does. Turn to First uh, Timothy. <clears throat> Keep your bookmark there, Psalm 145. And turn to First Timothy chapter 1 <clears throat> and verse 12. Because you see, in Paul's uh, case... God's patience had everything to do with him teaching Paul some deep truths about God's grace, God's mercy, God's faith, and God's love. Truths that he needed Paul to understand well as he sent him out as his ambassadors to the Gentiles. Truths that Paul would only understand well if he had kind of gone through the things that he had gone through. In 1 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 12, Paul writes this to his protege Timothy. I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord, who has strengthened me because he considered me faithful, putting me into service. Even though I was formerly a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent aggressor, yet I was shown mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was more than abundant with the faith and love which are found in Christ Jesus. It is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners among whom I am foremost of all. Yet for this reason I found mercy so that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might demonstrate His perfect patience. As an example for those who would believe in him for eternal life. There it is, friends. In other words, since Jesus would patiently, graciously, faithfully, lovingly save someone like Paul, this then would serve as an incredible example for any of us who would believe in him for eternal life. If he could save Paul or would save Paul, then yes, he would save any one of us. Paul, who saw himself as the foremost of sinners. And yet, for us who 
are believers, these attributes of God's grace and mercy and patience and loving kindness, they should be just as sweet to us, for don't we receive them daily? As we continually battle against our sin, as we daily experience the blessings that He has for us in our lives, And what have we been learning from this psalm except that in response to these tremendous characteristics of God that that bring us such benefit, that we are to extol Him and bless Him and praise Him and declare these things and meditate on them and speak of them and tell of them and eagerly utter the memory of them and shout joyfully of them and give thanks to Him and of course give God glory for them. Number nine, we see the psalmist declaring God's provision. Declaring God's provision. And we'll look at verses 14 to 16 here, where back in Psalm 145, the psalmist says, The Lord sustains all who fall and raises up all who are bowed down. The eyes of all look to you, and you give them their food in due time. You open your hand and satisfy the desire of every living thing. And again, we get to to gaze upon this common grace in that David uses the word all there three times before saying that God satisfies the desire of every living thing. The all does not literally mean every single person, past, present, and future, but rather is addressing all people in the sense of unbelievers as well as believers. In Matthew 5 and verse 45, the Sermon on the Mount, it says, For he, the Father, causes his Son to rise on the evil and the good, and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. Luke 6 and verse 35 tells us that God himself is kind to ungrateful and evil men. Wow, that's kind of a trip, huh? Acts 14 and verse 17, as Paul speaking to unbelievers, saying that God, quote, did not leave himself without witness in that he did good and gave you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. Again, that's for all people. Or Acts 17 and verse 25, Paul again saying that God, quote, gives to all people life and breath and all things. So, in what sense then does God or the Lord sustain all who fall and raises up all who are bowed down? The context here being about physical provision, as verse 15 has God providing food, verse 16 his hand satisfying the desire of every living thing, which can even refer to animals and even plants. God provides the sunshine, the soil, the water that most plants need to grow. He provides for their pollination, right, for flowers, for fruit. Uh, He provides the food and shelter required by animals even to sustain themselves. He provides worms for the birds, gazelles for the lions, right? Vegetation for all. 
It's funny, we don't mind seeing a worm get chomped up by a bird. We got a little problem sometimes on the animal kingdom, huh? watching the uh, gazelle go down. But hey, such is life, right? In verse 15, the eyes of all looking to the Lord is about humankind. And the fact that we are all dependent on God for giving us the food and drink that we need in order to survive. And this is all a part of his design, his design for creation. Right back in Genesis 1, 29 to 30, God saying to Adam and Eve, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the surface of all the earth, and every tree which is fruit yielding seed. It shall be food for you and to every beast of the earth and to every bird of the sky and to everything that moves on the earth which has life. I have given every green plant for food, and it was so. Turn to Psalm 104. Psalm 104. This is a great uh, understanding of God's provision. I was like, well, we should just about read the whole thing, but we're not. We're just going to read, starting in verse 10. Verse 10. The uh, heading here. For Psalm 104 in my Bible is the Lord's care over all his works. This is the psalmist declaring God's care over his works. He says this picking up in verse 10. He sends forth springs in the valleys. They flow between the mountains. They give drink to every beast of the field. The wild donkeys quench their thirst. Beside them, the birds of the heavens dwell. They lift up their voices among the branches. He waters the mountains from his upper chambers. The earth is satisfied with the fruit of his works. Verse 14, he causes the grass to grow for the cattle and vegetation for the labor of man. So that he may bring forth food from the earth and wine which makes the man's heart glad so that he may make his face glisten with oil and food which sustains man's heart the trees of the lord drink their fill the cedars of lebanon which he planted where the birds build their nests and the stork whose home is the fir trees the high mountains are for the wild goats the cliffs are a refuge for the Shephanim, I had to look that one up. It's a little furry animals that live in and around Palestine. He made the moon for the seasons. The sun knows the place of its setting. You appoint darkness and it becomes night in which all the beasts of the forest prowl about. The young lions roar after their prey and seek their food from God. When the sun rises, they withdraw and lie down in their dens. Man goes forth to his work and to his Labor until evening. Friends, God is the great provider. He is the great provider for all. People and animal, even plant. Going back to verse 14 of Psalm 145, we read, The Lord sustains all who fall. The, the understanding there is literally someone who is not able to keep their feet is what that means. Uh, referring to the weak. And he raises up all who are bowed down. Now in keeping with this context, this verse is also directed towards unbelievers as well as believers. 
to fall or be bowed down can certainly refer to physically or or mentally or spiritually. So when someone, you know, physically hurts themselves or gets sick, God has designed a healing process, hasn't he? I mean, doesn't that just blow you? It just, this blows me away. I mean, you get a cut on your hand. You get a cut on your finger, right? And okay, you go and you wash it out and hopefully you do all the things like, you know, Bactine and Neosporin and, you know, wrap it up in a Band-Aid. And, and I have no clue how this works, right? But somehow the skin comes back together and it rejoins itself. Or you break a bone and the bone fuses back together. I mean, that, that is something to be amazed at, right? That is just mind-boggling that God can sustain us when we physically fall. When someone gets a heart attack even or, or cancer, God has given us doctors and he's given us medicine and he's given us technology and treatments. And when someone is bowed down low, they might be distressed in some form or fashion, even depressed brought down maybe because of the trials of life, illness, mental or physical, finances, troublesome relationships, difficult family dynamics, unfulfilling jobs, disappointments in life, or regretful decisions. And yet, who gets them through each day? I mean, think about that. Who sustains them or provides for their needs? You might say, well, maybe their friends do or their family do. They have a certain support system. Well, yes, of course. But who provides those? Who provides each new day for God's mercies to be new and afresh? I mean, the rising sun or the beauty of nature... Who provides the help of a stranger or just even a needed laugh or a carefree moment to get someone through the day? Even if somebody has kind of, quote, you know, pulled themselves up by their bootstraps. Do we really believe it was solely them, us, that did that? Or does it ultimately come from a God who loves his creation A creation, again, that he has made in his very own image, sustaining and raising up all who have fallen or become bowed down. Let us give him glory for that. Lastly, number 10. Declaring God's salvation and wrath. Declaring God's salvation and wrath. And wrath. Verses 18 to 20. Verse 18 says, The Lord is near to all who call upon him, to all who call upon him in truth. He will fulfill the desire of those who fear him. He will also hear their cry and will save them. The Lord keeps all who love him, but all the wicked he will destroy. David leaves common grace. In favor of now special grace as he declares God's attributes or declares the attributes of a God who saves. And the first we see there in verse 18, the first attribute that God is near. He is near. 
near to all who call upon him, near in the context of a personal relationship. He is not a God far off or or distant. It's not that kind of deistic way of believing or thinking that God, yes, has created all things and gets all things going and then stands apart from his creation, just kind of watching it all play out. Deuteronomy 4 and verse 7 says, For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as is the Lord our God whenever we call on Him? The nation of Israel understood the nearness of God. Psalm 34, 18 says, The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in Spirit In Isaiah 55 and verse 6, seek the Lord while he may be found, call upon him while he is near. He is near to us. How incredible, friends, that the God of the universe would not be this far off, distant God, separate from his creation, but rather he is up close. He is personal. He cares, he loves, so much so that this side of the cross, he actually sends us his very own Holy Spirit so that he can be near to us, indwelling us, taking up residence in us, abiding in us. And he is near to all who call upon him, who call upon him in truth. The truth of who He is and who we are, that we are sinners in need of a Savior. And again, this side of the cross, that is what Jesus accomplished on our behalf. In John 4, 24, John says, writes, Jesus' words, God is spirit and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. We worship Him with our spirit, right? Little s, which is to say a proper heart attitude and according to the truth of his word. Back in Psalm 145 and verse 19, we also read that he will fulfill the desire of those who fear him. He will also hear their cry and will save them. And this also goes back to God as provider, right? Fulfilling the desires of those who fear him and who fears him, but those who have believed in him. There is no fear of God for unbelievers. In Psalm 10, verse 17, the psalmist says, O Lord, you have heard the desire of the humble. You will strengthen their heart because we come to God in humility, recognizing that we are broken Sinful, wicked creatures who need their hearts strengthened, who need his salvation. And, and, and of course, the desire here is for salvation, for the forgiveness of sins, for eternal life. And that's the context of the second half, which says that he will also hear their cry and will save them. As Jesus says during the Sermon on the Mount, blessed are those who mourn. For they shall be comforted. That's referring to the mourning over our sin. Or continuing with Isaiah 55, now in verse 7. Let the wicked forsake his way, and the unrighteous man his thoughts, and let him return to the Lord. And he will have compassion on him, and to our God, for he will abide. 
abundantly pardoned. And along with the Lord being near and fulfilling the desires of salvation, he also keeps all who love him. Verse 20, which means to guard. He guards what he has given to us, our salvation. He keeps charge of us and protects us. As we read in Psalm 91 and verse 14, because he has loved me, therefore I will deliver him. I will set him securely on high, says the Lord, because he has known my name in that personal way. And Psalm 97 and verse 10, hate evil, you who love the Lord, who preserves the souls of his godly ones. He delivers them from the hand of the wicked. He preserves your soul. He delivers you from the hand of the wicked. This is that tremendous, glorious doctrine, friends, of the preservation of the saints that, again, we had back in our salvation of God's study, that once God saves someone, He will keep them until the day of Christ Jesus, Christ's return, and us being ushered into, ultimately, the eternal state with Christ forever and ever. In other words, you can't under any circumstances ever lose your salvation. This is John 6 and verse 39 when Jesus says, This is the will of Him who sent me, that of all that He has given me, I lose nothing but raise it up on the last day. How many of us will Jesus lose? None. None. He says in John 10, My sheep hear my voice. And I know them and they follow me and I give eternal life to them and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. Amen. Amen. Romans 8, 29 to 30, that great text for those whom he foreknew. He also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son so that he, the son, would be the firstborn among many brethren. And these whom he predestined, he also called. And these whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. It's a done deal, friends. Done deal. Praise him. Hallelujah. What a savior And then lastly, David declares God's justice through his wrath. The Lord keeps all who love him, but all the wicked he will destroy. He will destroy. As the psalmist says in 31, 23, O love the Lord, all you his godly ones. The Lord preserves the faithful and fully recompenses the proud doer. Meaning, because they're trying to do things out of works righteousness. Trying to save themselves by their good deeds. And in John 3 and verse 36, again, Jesus says, He who believes in the Son has eternal life, but he who does not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. And finally, in Revelation 20 and verse 15, if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. He declares God's justice through 
his wrath. And friends, what again, what again should our response be? What should our response be to God's salvation and his wrath against all sin and unrighteousness and ungodliness and and against those who, who would not repent and believe and trust his son? Oh, friends, this should drop us to our knees. This should plant our faces so deep in the dirt that he would bless us with salvation, that he would satisfy, of course, his justice, which is that justice that we have also been given that is in us that will be satisfied. When he executes his wrath against all sin. Yes, we should praise him. We should glorify him. We should extol him. We should thank him. We should speak much of these glorious truths to any and all who would listen. And, and, and what an open door opportunity. The silver platter, if you will, at the holiday season. Or or maybe we look at it and go, well, gosh, the world is so against Christmas. Maybe it seems like it makes things a bit tougher to say or speak the name of Jesus. Oh, let us not fall into that trap, friends, the trap of the world. Let us be ready and willing to tell people Merry Christmas, right, and to give them the reason for the hope that we have inside and the, the reason that we even have this holiday that we are now underway in celebrating. Well, a couple of weeks ago, I, I started out this series with a quote from one of my favorite preachers, Steve Lawson, in regard to this psalm. And I will end it by actually letting him have the last word. He writes this about, about this psalm. He says, what David has declared in this psalm must be our daily personal experience. Rising up from within our souls must be an anthem of perpetual praise to God. We must always be lifting our voices and magnifying the name of the Lord. God is so worthy of our praise that we should never cease extolling His name. He is great and therefore greatly to be praised. His sovereignty is unsearchable, far beyond our human comprehension. His incomparable glory produces wonder and astonishment and overwhelms us. His mighty deeds induce within us awe-filled worship that must be offered to God forever. End quote. Let's pray. Father God, I pray that yes, these, these truths that we have, Lord, been blessed to hear and come to know about you, about your Son, I pray that these things, Lord, are, are just there in our hearts, in our minds, that they now, Lord, will be on the tips of our tongues. Lord, that we would come together as a church body, a church family, and Lord, offer these prayers and praises and thanksgivings and exaltations to you, but that, Father, we would carry that out there in the world, the unbelieving world, Lord. 
that in doing so, we would be quick to exalt you and extol you. And at this Christmas season, Lord, where I know the world has just turned against you, turned against your son, turned against this holiday. People aren't allowed to say Merry Christmas. They have to say Happy Holidays. It's only a happy holiday because it's a Merry Christmas, Father. And I pray that we would be bold this season and all seasons, that we would be bold to declare your awesome attributes and and tremendous characteristics and that we would have just a, a right response in those. We pray this all in your Son, Jesus' name. Scripture quotations taken from the New American Standard Bible. Copyright by the Lockman Foundation.